everybody. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Expiration Date. I'm Michelle. And I'm David. Okay, so we're going to jump right in by talking about some current events as in keeping our tradition that we've recently started. Today is Sunday, June 12th. Um, in the news right now, it's Pride Month, so happy Pride to all of our listeners. Happy Pride. What else is going on in the news? The Uvalde stuff is still pretty big. January 6th is public. Oh, yes. January 6th commission is going on right now. Right. Which live, we, live hearings. Live hearings. And they are being memefied as I'm we sure speak. I'm sure they are. Another thing we're going to discuss this episode, the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. And if you ask yourself, how do you get there? <laughs> Just you wait, audience. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. It's an exciting... This is going to be an exciting episode. I'm just kidding. It's going to be a little tedious. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue our story of the Dulles Brothers. I didn't type out this episode like I normally do. Normally, I type out every single word that I say. It's kind of weird. And it just comes off so... I seem so relaxed and normal when I do that. No, I'm kidding. So we are going to um, talk a little bit about World War II. And then we're going to go through to the Bay of Pigs. Doesn't seem like a long time, but a lot happened. Um, and it is a pretty tumultuous time for military intelligence. They're kind of really getting their feet off the ground after World War II. And the reason I didn't type a bunch of stuff out is because I'm just going to kind of see where some of these topics organically evolve as we're talking about them. Because it it's pretty, it's pretty dense stuff, and I kind of want to keep it as brief as we can. So what we're going to try to do today um, is we're going to talk about a little bit about World War II, then we're going to go into the coup in Guatemala, which mm-hmm. was the CIA's first big counterintelligence action outside of warfare. So I think it's important. Um, and they kind of wrote their playbook based on what they did in Guatemala. And then uh, we're going to talk about a little bit about another program that they had in the 60s that was a little bit different than toppling governments called MK Ultra. And then we're going to talk about the Bay of Pigs and some stuff around Cuba. And then after we finish the meat of this episode, David and I are going to talk about, we're going to take a little break after we learn, um, you know that phenomenon when you learn a new word Mm -hmm. and then you hear it everywhere? Right. After I teach you about the CIA's playbook, we're going to talk about a few current events that I think the CIA is involved with. Excellent. So it's very exciting. And I'm ready to do this. All right. So we're not going to talk a ton about World War II. But one thing I think is pretty important to understand, just because that is one of the few things that Americans do receive an education about, they can talk about, they know basically when it happened and how it happened and who were the major players. So I want to tell you a little bit about the military intelligence during World War II that we don't hear a lot about. Basically, the OSS, which is the precursor of the CIA, uh, Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles are heavily involved um, in what the the OSS is doing during World War II. And basically... What Alan Dulles did as one of the first big spies of World War II is they would go to neutral places like Switzerland, and they would make sure that capital would continue to move between elites, no matter what country they were from. You mean money? Money. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, uh, and um, like human trafficking, things, all of that, so that all of that stuff could continue during World War II. And U.S. intelligence was heavily involved in making sure that all of that stuff continued to happen. So that you maintain this normal business operation in the midst of a global war. Yes. Okay. And, well, and a lot of the upper echelon of the Nazis had a bunch of money, um, and they wanted to continue to use that money and spend that money 
and move that money and protect that money, whether Germany won or not. And the U.S. helped the US in that? The U.S. very much helped with that. Alan and John Foster Dulles specifically and directly through their law firm and their work with U.S. intelligence helped Nazis move their money around. And then after World War II, made sure that most of the upper-level Nazis, especially if they had money, um, were not only put back into the German government, but in some cases came and helped the American government rebuild Germany's intelligence off of, based on the, I mean, with the, some of the same Nazi officials. Tried to help Goebbels escape, but U.S. intelligence did not support the idea of a Nuremberg trial. That was the Soviets that pushed for that. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to understand what the CIA or the OSS or U.S. intelligence is. They are almost, especially during this time, almost completely white, male, Christian elite. They go to the Ivy League universities. That's still where the CIA gets most of its recruits from is Ivy League universities, old money these are the guys who smoke the cigars in the rooms and make all the decisions. It's very, it's very cliche. And they would use lower level people that we will talk about, people from the lower class, but they would, it was not something that they, not people that they valued. They valued wealth and power. And the only other requirement was that you were anti-communist, which all of the Nazis happened to be. And so... One thing I think that they try to sell us in America is that America hated the Nazis and we fought against them very hard. And I'm just trying to tell you that huge swaths of our government had zero issue with the Nazis. FDR did not like Nazis. And if he had lived, I think he would have made sure that Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles were prosecuted for their work. But unfortunately, he died during the war. America's relationship with the Nazis like eugenics was really popular in America in the early 1900s, was gaining popularity amongst progressive elites throughout the entire world. Tons of Americans were very supportive of the Nazi regime mm -hmm. and of the Third Reich and of their ideas during the war and before the war. For example, Henry Ford, mm -hmm. I think his name dropped in Mein Kampf. Like, I, I think, and supposedly... Hitler kept a picture of Henry Ford in his office, which we don't have time to get into Henry Ford, but that is a, that is a good, that's a whole episode. We have him to thank for the destruction of the American worker and square dancing. We don't have time to get into that. Um, <laughs> square dancing. <laughs> anyway, he was an open white supremacist. Nobody in the government, like the, nobody in the government wanted the Jewish people to come here. We didn't want Jewish refugees. Famously, there was a, a boat full of Jewish people that tried to dot and nobody would take them. Mm. It was awful. Like when people try to sell you the idea that Germany was the only bad guy in World War II, they're doing exactly, they're just trying to sell you something that nobody came out of World War II looking good. I wonder what will happen in 80 years removed from this day and age, how we will look at some of the stuff that's been done towards those same marginalized people mm -hmm. and see if we gloss it over because as humans we have a tendency to remember the good things mm -hmm. and kind of back burner the bad things mm -hmm. so i'm glad that we'll have this record of it that we're doing so that we can always check into it yeah and to just so that you understand to like when we talk about the history of racism in america this is not an exaggeration the third reich the way that they set up some of the 
philosophies and laws is based on Jim Crow, quite mm. literally. Like they wrote, they exchanged letters with people in America, with government officials when they were setting up how they were going to run the Third Reich and some of the racial laws they were going to put into place. They based them on Jim Crow. And <laughs> that was still rampant here until like, I mean, at least the Third Reich ended in the 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, I just, it just, that's why the rest of the world, when America says things like, we're the freest place and people just roll, other countries just roll their eyes because it's, it's not true. So we don't really have time to get into any more of World War II, though the history of intelligence is absolutely fascinating. And I don't want to give the impression that there were not anti-racist and good people fighting for the American side in World War II, because there were, and you already know their names, and there's not that many of them. Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, who we introduced last week, were not good men. America wins the war, or Soviets win the war. America benefits greatly. Um, we move the Nazis around. We move the money around. We're doing great. The OSS turns into the CIA. And then uh, we see them really start with their message of anti-communism. Everything is Soviet Russia trying to interfere with any, any, anything that they could blame on Russia, they would do. So let's get to Guatemala. First, I want to talk about the United Fruit Company. Have you ever heard of the United Fruit Company? They are a... They grow bananas, basically. They turned into Chiquita Banana later mm. on. It's a multinational corporation. They started in the late 19th century. Guy moved to Guatemala, started growing bananas, formed the United Fruit Company. Uh, none of that's really important. But one thing you need to understand about what American businesses were doing in Central and South America was what we would call neocolonialism. They would go into these poor peasant nations outfit them with some infrastructure usually based around um getting one their company. stuff out yeah getting their stuff out and um whether it was growing food coffee beans tobacco whatever they would go in these places use the use the people as essentially slave labor and um overtake the country and the country that they were doing this to could do nothing about it so that's one thing that the united fruit company did so Guatemala was run by a very American business-friendly dictatorship, basically open slavery until the revolution of 1944. After 1944, um, there was a couple of left-wing presidents that got into power, and then uh, Jacobo Arbenz was elected in 1951 by an overwhelming majority of his people. This is a democratically elected president of Guatemala. He was not a communist. He was left-leaning but he was not a communist. However, he did the unforgivable. He was a little bit left of center and he tried to redistribute some of the resources of Guatemala to help the people of Guatemala. He did this at the expense of the United Fruit Company. He paid them the value of the land that they were paying taxes on, not all of it, and a significant portion of the land that he did buy back was unused by the United Fruit Company. They just owned it and they wanted to keep it. And he made sure that some of that got redistributed to the peasants of his country, of the Guatemalan people. He allowed uh, banana laborers to form unions and required that the United Fruit Company honor that, um, you know, because they wanted to continue to use them as slaves. But for some reason, he didn't like that. This American business was deeply in bed with the U.S. government. Both Dulles brothers that worked at the firm's, um, Crom the Cromwell firm that we talked about last time, the United Fruit Company was a client of theirs, and they helped move the, a lot of their money. The military director of the CIA, because Alan Dulles was the civilian director of the CIA, but when it changed to the 
from the OSS to the CIA. The guy that was one of the directors of the CIA, during them planning this coup, he quit serving in the government and then went to work as an executive at United Fruit Company. So this is what I was talking about, a major theme, is the open door between private business and the upper levels of government. These people went back and forth. They made money off of each other, and they made sure that the U.S. State Department backed what was healthy for American businesses. Okay, so Arbenz, they decided Jacobo Arbenz had to go. The U.S. military began to uncritically call him a communist. He wasn't. There were a few in his government, but a very few. Um, and they were not in positions of a lot of power. The CIA began putting out in the media that the Soviets were going to take over Guatemala and block the U.S. from the Panama Canal. This was not true. There was no danger of that. The Soviets were not working with Arbenz. They began to say that food prices would dramatically increase because of what he was doing. Arbenz didn't even kick out the United Fruit Company. He just asked them to follow their laws. He began building infrastructure because the United Fruit Company owned all the telephones, the radios, the roads, the ra the railroads. They owned everything. Um, and Arbenz began to try to compete with that by building some infrastructure, which he completely has the right to do. All he asked was that United Fruit Company follow their laws, let the banana workers unionize, and let Guatemala keep some of its resources. Um, so the CIA began arming the right wing of the military. Um, some disgruntled people that had tried to take over Guatemala a few times um, from the upper echelons of the military that were in surrounding U.S.-friendly nations like Nicaragua and Honduras. The CIA began to train and arm those people, and that is a common theme, too. When a left-wing person gets elected and then the right-wing fascists are kicked out of the country, a lot of times the U.S. will find those people, arm them and fund them, and send them back to their country. That is a, so that's what basically our strategy in Guatemala. They began uprisings, um, and they would go around and attack small villages, rural areas, and they would distribute literature, play films, broadcast things on the radio about Arbenz that weren't true. These, these militia, this right-wing militia called the Liberation Army, that the CIA named them the Liberation Army, which is just great, began doing like terrorist activities, and they would plant weapons with Soviet insignias on them to make it look like the Soviets were involved when they were not. Next, there was uh, bombing campaigns with U.S. planes and U.S. pilots bombing infrastructure. Naval ships um, were sent and used by these guys from Honduras and Nicaragua. The media campaigns, they were flooding airways, dropping leaflets, told lies about Arvin, saying he was going to disband the military, saying that the coup was inevitable, saying if he didn't resign, we'll kill you all. Just very, just a bombarding campaign in every way imaginable. Um, the CIA reached out to American clergy and began to have them pressure clergy in Guatemala to start preaching anti-communism, anti-Arbenz, and pro-American-friendly government, uh, pro-United Fruit Company stuff. Um, and this was all done pretty quickly, and it was became their playbook. Hmm. Um, so you have the church, the media, actual weapons, um, actual literal bombing campaigns, and um, so these people are being accosted. Um, from multiple fronts. From multiple fronts. And then, for some reason, Jacobo Arbenz tried to fight, and uh, the U.S. offered him a great sum of money. He refused until finally members of his own military basically said, why don't you just go 
because they're going to kill him anyway. And they said, why don't you go and one of us will take over. We may be a little bit more friendly with the United States. Anyway. And this is a result of what him trying to get in the way of the United, United Fruit, Fruit Company. Company. This was all because of the land back programs that he tried to do with um, peasants. And the United Fruit Company was a client of the Dulles brothers mm-hmm. who, and the Dulles brothers had control and influence within the government mm-hmm. and the CIA. They and were so, the government and, and the, CIA. the CIA. And so that's kind of how that happened. Yeah. And it, it, it's so fascinating that none of this would have been seen as a conflict of interest. Right. That, I mean, still goes on. I mean, we see it today. Yeah. You see all the time people personally, all those senators that bought all that stock right before the pandemic. For sure. Like they, or sold stock. I don't know, I remember what it was, but none of them got, they're not going to get in trouble. And I think the playbook by the United States to kind of attack on these different fronts is not something that is, like you said, it's not something new. And it's probably not something that many people would disagree with, but you also named it the conflict of interest and the motivation behind it. Mm-hmm. If it's profits for a U.S. company or a company not like that, again, like <laughs> there's a lot of harm in that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it and so basically, as the Liberation Army moves across Guatemala, burning houses, killing people, killing civilians, um, doing all this horrific stuff. Uh, they finally an anti-communist anti-communist movement is what it is. Right? Yes, yeah. it's an anti-communist movement. And they um, anyway, Arbenz leaves. The U.S. installs their own dictator, who was the leader of the Liberation Army, Castillo Armas, as his name. You've probably actually heard. You've probably heard of Armas. He's he was a dictator for I think six years after this. But basically, once they kicked out Arbenz and installed the U.S. friendly dictator, he gave all of the land back to the United Fruit Company destroyed all of the unions, killed everybody who tried to labor organize, um, who tried to stand up and say, you can't use this as slaves anymore. Um, he would kill people based on them being communists or uh, and it, just calling anyone a communist was, a, was enough to be arrested and killed. It's just a very convenient demonization narrative that is heavily pushed by the CIA. Fun little fact to remember for later, John Foster Dulles called Armas and asked him and said, I want you to make sure that you go through all the embassies and kill all the people that are seeking asylum. And um, for some unknown reason, he refused to do that. Uh, he wouldn't do it. He said no, which was the only thing he really ever like defied the United States on. And had he done that, a young man named Ernesto Guevara was in one of the... He would have been killed. He was in Guatemala at the time. He was Argentinian, but so I think he was in the Argentinian embassy seeking asylum because he was working against the United Fruit Company in Guatemala. He was one of the people that he and Arbenz exchanged letters. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Remember him when we get to Bay of Pigs. He's important. This was maybe 53, 54, 1954, I think. And so this is a lot of dates in here. Sorry. It's interesting because I, I was looking this up, but the United Nations in 1951 convention said everyone has the right to seek and enjoy in other countries asylum free from persecution or that. So he's telling this, he this. Yeah. He tried, they tried to reach out to the UN. Um, and Arbenz himself did. They, the in the security council tried to act and the United States essentially blocked it. Hmm. Um, so they, the United nations did try to stop us from doing this. And the head of security council, I can't remember his name, basically said, I don't think I want to be in the United nations. If this is what it is, if we can't stop this, mm-hmm. what use are we? Mm-hmm. And, and didn't get anywhere. Yeah, didn't get anywhere. 
but yeah, that's uh anyway, uh, labor organizers were killed, and basically, um, his the U.S. overthrowing Arbenz and installing Armas led to forty years of off and on civil war, countless deaths of civilians. The people who suffered the most, as we see with empire, were the poor and the marginalized. It was awful. And Guatemala itself has really not recovered much from that. It is still a very impoverished country. So for those people out there listening who are concerned about migrants coming across the border that are other place, other than Mexican migrants from Guatemala and Honduras, when we, when we look to place blame, let's keep this into consideration as mm-hmm. to the root causes of why this is happening. Yes. And I am telling you this because this was one of the first coups that they carried out that was successful, but we did this all over Central and South America. This was this is not a unique story. This one just has all the high points of the playbook. I'm going to read a quote from a really good book that if anybody has read it, this is one I actually put my eyes on words on the page and read it. So if you want to talk about it, let me know. It's called Killing Hope. This is opposed to her listening to audiobooks. Yes. There's something about Michelle that you need to know <laughs> is that she reads with air quotes all the stuff that she says some of it just may be audio audio, but yeah yeah and a lot i know a lot of people out there say listening to an audio book is not the same as reading a book and i agree with you it is very hard to fold laundry while you are reading a book um anyway thus it was that the educated urbane men of the state department the cia and the united fruit company the pipe smoking comfortable men of princeton harvard and Wall Street assured each other that the illiterate peasants of Guatemala did not deserve the land which they had been given, that workers did not need their unions, and that hunger and torture were a small price to pay for being rid of the scourge of communism. And once again, there was no communism here. Arbenz was not a communist. It wouldn't have mattered if he was or he wasn't. They were going to do this anyway. And Armas made sure that 75% of the population couldn't vote. Thousands were killed, arrested, tortured. It was awful. Now we're going to switch to a different kind of intelligence program. The coup stuff, wrote the playbook on the coups. We did that all all over um, in many places, sometimes in Europe, but usually just to brown people. And it was very successful. We were very good at it. Okay, we're going to talk about... (laughs) This is one of the ones... Please, if you do not believe me, please just Google this. It is free and public information. Um, It's on the CIA's website. It's in many government websites. This This is a... This is real. <laughs> it's called MTK Ultra. From 1953 to 1973 is when the program was up and running. Uh, supposedly it was dismantled in 1973. Don't know if I believe that. But during World War II, Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, but more so Alan, became obsessed with the idea of controlling the human body, either with mind control or using making people have heart attacks or making people have cancer. He became obsessed with being able to control other people's bodies using either medication, torture, 
uh, drugs, whatever. He became enamored with that and kind of creating like a super soldier. So the super soldier that you could control his mind and body and get him to go assassinate somebody else um, and then not remember it. This is Manchurian candidate stuff. Like this is, I mean, this is, it, it, there was a lot of fiction written about this based on this, but this is reality. Mainly it started Sounds out- Sounds like a Marvel movie. <laughs> most of the information that we have about MKL's or most of it was destroyed, but a good portion of it is about the mind control. And during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, in hospitals and clinics and CIA front places in the United States, in New York specifically, they would uh, subject Americans, mainly ones with mental illness, to these experiments. They would give them drugs and then torture them and try to get them to be able be responsive to orders from a government official. They played with memory. A lot of this is based on the research of Nazi scientists on experiments that they did in the concentration camps and more less, very much less well-known what the Japanese scientists did to um, the chi rural Chinese farmers. I'm going to link it because we don't have time to talk about it, but there's a Wikipedia page called Unit 731. I wouldn't recommend that you go read it because it's awful. And so one of the first things about MKUltra that was pushed was that we have to make, whenever you bring up things like this, people say, well, we, you know, that though that was ill-gotten science, um, the Nazi scientist stuff and the Japanese scientist stuff, though that was ill-gotten, the gains that we have from it just don't justify the means. I've never heard anybody say that, but the there is no reason for America not to benefit from what was already done um, because we ended up with most of that research and also the space program. Anyway, we're not talking about that either. <laughs> Sorry. I digress. Anyway, they, but most of the research that they were doing was for the benefit of the military. It was how long could somebody survive if you crush their legs? How long can somebody survive in the cold if they don't have clothes? How long? And this was all for warfare. That's all it was. It's not like they were doing cancer research on POWs. This was not to benefit humanity. Because that's one of the most common things I hear when I talk about us making deals with the most evil people that have ever existed. Not That's not true. With some of the most evil people, um, when the United States made deals with them, it was like, well, it was to benefit. You know, we needed that research. And it's like, no, it just led to more warfare. And so, I don't know. But that's How would you respond to someone who say, and you kind of mentioned this, who would say... You know, if we didn't do it, someone else would do that, and then we wouldn't be in a position to be able to appropriately respond. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, I think that you could make that argument, and I, that's that's one of the more common ones that I have heard, is that if we hadn't taken it, somebody else would. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably true. They probably would have. And again, I think this just reminds us of the whole intention behind this podcast. Like, we're not here to to solve problems yeah. or answer questions. Yeah. We're just here to let you know what's going on and why it's going on. We want you to learn some new words so that when you see them everywhere, you'll know. And, and you can make up your own damn and mind. you can make up your own mind. Yeah. Or don't make up your mind. Don't Just don't let Alan Dulles be involved <laughs> in anything that happens in your mind. Okay, so they used LSD, hallucinogens, shock, sleep deprivation, verbal and sexual abuse, his, hypnosis, isolation, on U.S. citizens in U.S. hospitals without their consent and sometimes without their knowledge. And foreign nationals, sorry, Canada. We did this to a bunch of Canadians uh, as well. They employed many physicians and clinicians. And to me, there is nothing 
scary because I'm, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast. I'm a nurse practitioner and I've worked with a lot of different doctors and a doctor that would work for military intelligence is its own thing and have been responsible for a lot of atrocities that we may or may not have time to get into at some point, just with the U S torturing people and doing things like MK ultra. Many of the people who worked for the CIA were physicians and clinicians of different kinds, psychiatrists, psychologists, things like that. And that's pretty scary to me. And I'm just going to bring that. That was just kind of a personal anecdote. Uh, this was definitely targeted at mentally ill people and poor people. And you would recognize the names of some of the patients if I said them, which I'm going to right now. I don't know why I said that. That's weird. Charles, dun, dun, dun. Charles Manson uh, was one. He was being treated by an MK Ultra doctor. Lee Harvey Oswald was one. <laughs> Jack Ruby was another one. At which point? Was this before or after they committed all the atrocities? Probably uh, after. So huh? Char- there is a book that I have on my list that I just, I have not. It's this, he wrote the, um, one of the other books that I've listed as a source that the name is escaping me right now, but it's about uh, Charles Manson and the CIA. So his parole officer was an MK Ultra clinician. Um, and he worked as a parole officer, I think. This is this is a Michelle take. I think he worked as a parole officer to get poor, to get access to poor, disenfranchised people that the state doesn't care about. Mm-hmm. And so Charles Manson should have been in jail several times because he violated parole quite frequently, but his officer, plural officer never turned him in for some inexplicable reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe because they were doing weird shit to his brain. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Charles Manson, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, it was when he was like, I think 15, uh, when he moved to New York with his mom, he was treated by an MK Ultra doctor um, that there's a book out there about called Betrayal, anyway, before he joined the military at 17. And so, anyway, he then went on to work for the CIA. So now we're going to talk a little bit about Cuba. So Cuba, I think it's 90 miles off the coast of Florida. This was an American businessman's paradise. Unlike Guatemala, Cuba had a very, very robust tourist industry in the 50s. So there were many U.S. businesses that operated here. The United States organized crime operated heavily there. The mob um, was heavily involved in Cuban businesses. And it had been under U.S. control since the early 1900s. The last dictator we installed, Batista, was overthrown by popular revolution in 1959, Blowback is a podcast that I would definitely recommend you listen to. The first season is about the Iraq war, but the second season is about the Cuban revolution. It is fantastic. Before the U.S. revolution, U.S. corporations basically stole all of the resources, made it impossible for Cubans to thrive by stealing their resources and money and their real estate. Uh, U.S. organized crime ran the entertainment districts. There were big casinos here, and the Cuban people were de facto slaves. So just like Guatemala. Castro and Che Guevara were the main two guys that started the Cuban Revolution. Fidel Castro, he became the leader of Cuba, and he, like Arbenz, wanted to make sure that the Cuban people would benefit from the resources of Cuba. The thing about Castro was, is he was actually a communist um, and actually friends with the Soviets, so this was unacceptable to the CIA. This could not stand. And so, then we get to the Bay of Pigs, and just to give you some context, the Bay of Pigs happened, uh, it was planned in March of 1960 when Eisenhower was president and he was very supportive of it. And then Kennedy got elected in November of 1960 and they didn't kick off the Bay of Pigs until Kennedy was in office. And it is ultimately why Allen killed him. 
because of the disastrous Why result. Why Allen killed? Kennedy. Okay. Uh, I know that's a bold, that's, <laughs> that's a bold claim. And we're going to get, we will get to it eventually. Actually, I'm going to talk to you all about that. So I, every time I tell somebody that I'm doing a podcast about, or that we're doing episodes about the CIA, that's the first question they ask me. They say, did the CIA kill Kennedy? And I say, yes, I think so. Mm. And then they say, how? And I ask, I say, okay. And I start to tell them. And then they're like, I really need you to stop talking. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> our next episode can be the Kennedy assassination episode. We can deep dive into it. I can tell you all the names. I can tell you what happened. It's fascinating. I loved this stuff before I started. Uh, like the first chapter book I read was about John F. Kennedy. It was very weird. But, and so I've found this stuff fascinating. I find it fascinating, but I don't know that anybody else really does. So if you guys want, so let us know, listeners. Because if we don't get into the Kennedy stuff, I think after this we can move on from the CIA after today's episode. But if we, if we want to do a Kennedy episode, which I would love that, let me know if you're interested and we can do it. Now we're going to take a little break and we're going to switch directions. And so now that you know the playbook, so here's what you need to look for. Arming people who are considered fascists, propaganda campaigns that stretch across all types of media. If anybody is even left-leaning, labeling them a communist can be a death note. Saying untrue things about the military of foreign states so that we can use that to our advantage. So like in Iraq, when they said they have WMDs, they're going to try and kill us. No, no, they didn't. Hmm. And so it, anyway, now that you know some of, more of the specifics of the playbook, also you see when we have CIA coups or when we have military intelligence meddling in other countries, those things come back to haunt us at home. So the, like with WMDs, the, the led to the Patriot Act and the NSA explosion of the surveillance state, like we, we're the most surveilled people in the world in the United States, and the government owns all of our private information because of what the CIA was doing to Iraq. And we see things like the Uvalde shooting, and this is one thing that really hurts me when I see it, where they'll say, this isn't Fallujah. We, these guns don't belong here. And I hear what you're saying. I agree with you. But until we say they don't belong in Fallujah either— they're going to be a problem for us. Does that make sense? Hmm. So they call them weapons of war and they say people shouldn't have these in America. People, this should not be walking down the street. I understand what you're saying. And I understand that a lot of people tell me I'm naive when I say things like that. But until we say, I mean, until we can say as a people, I don't think they belong in Fallujah either. I really don't see how we're going to get rid of them. I, I don't know. Right. You know what I mean? No, I, I think you make a good statement. I think you make a good statement about kind of warfare and how we should approach that at all means. And, and and you're not wrong in that. But I would counter to say that the military has other ways to engage with people they find to be enemies so that they could get those out of Fallujah and mm -hmm. still get them out of the United States as well. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about a big one, a big media campaign, I guess you could say, that happened recently in the United States, and I think it's all fake, and I suspect the CIA, and I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I want us to talk about it. So I'm going to make a statement. I'm so nervous. Don't be nervous. This okay. is very normal. This will not make any of our listeners uncomfortable. It very much will. Um, 
I've said this to a few people and they just walked away from me, I think. <laughs> but there was no meaningful Russian intervention in the 2016 election. There wasn't. It was all fake. It was done by the CIA. I'm not sure that it was done by the CIA. I think some of it was just the media itself and the nature of American politics. But I suspect that the CIA was involved. I suspect military intelligence was involved, whether it was the FBI and the CIA working in tandem, which they do sometimes. But yeah, I think it was a, I think it was a planned op. To get Trump elected or to not get him elected? To not. So I think to, um, I think it was to explain the election of Donald Trump because Though I have not been clear about my own personal politics on this show, one thing you have to understand about the election of Donald Trump is I don't think that the military establishment liked him very much. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't think they wanted him to be elected because of the way that his candidacy specifically revealed some of the deepest flaws in America. Hmm. Just because his people would say things like, he's so openly racist and he's so, yeah, he is. But like, do you think? Do you think that George Bush wasn't? Hmm. Do you think that Joe Biden isn't? It, it, I mean, and he's, he was an awful president. Donald Trump was an awful president. I'm not saying this in support of Donald Trump at all. But what I'm saying right. is I think the military intelligence and the media work together, which they work together with the media all the time, um, did that. And I mean, it, it has echoes of all of the same. It's like Robert Mueller became a household name and everybody loved him. He was the, he's the second longest serving director of the FBI. He's not a good dude. Hmm. Like he, in just the fact that like act there, there was some, I can't remember who it was. That there was some actor that instead of doing his play that he was, his vanity play project that he was doing in some theater, he read the Mueller report, which it, and Can you did. imagine paying 170 bucks to go see that, and then all of a sudden he's reading the Mueller report? Yeah, and it's like I don't know. I can't remember who it was. I'll have to think of it. But and it just allowed it allowed for a few things. It allowed the American elites to make an excuse for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. They could say, and for the reason that Hillary Clinton was so deeply unpopular, it allowed them to offload all of that criticism onto blaming the Russians, and it allowed us to. It allowed Donald Trump, I don't know that they intended this, it allowed Donald Trump to make that the focus of his entire presidency. So all he had to do was say, deep states against me, deep states against me, and that's all he had to run. That's all he had to campaign on. That's all he had to have his rallies on. He didn't have to do anything he had promised during the campaign, which I don't know if you guys remember, but during the 2016 campaign, he said some good things. He said some terrible things, but he said some good things about being anti-interventionalist and and he said that the, you know, the Middle East was a big mistake that America had made. He said some good things. Um, he talked about how he could buy senators or whatever, whenever he said during the debate and where he said he could, he could buy both democratic and Republican senators. That's a problem. And he was also super volatile and he would just say stuff that I don't think he was supposed to say. And so the military intelligence did not like him. Mm-hmm. Now, just cause I happen to agree with the military intelligence on that doesn't mean I agree with what they did. Right. And I have, I don't have nothing to back this up. There's a bunch of, um, I'll, I'll link in the sources, I'll link, um, in the show notes, what I, what I'm basing this opinion on. And it's the work of mainly three journalists, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Matt Taibbi and Aaron Mate. I think it's his line. M-A, it's M-A-T-E with an apostrophe. I think, I think it's Mate or I can't remember, but I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, but 
they have been sounding this horn since the beginning that hmm. this was not, and they've been on a ton of podcasts, so I can just link the podcast as some of it's pretty easy. To listen. Um, the one I would recommend the most is, uh, one called Russia gate by true and on it's a, uh, they're a podcast that, um, is fantastic. And they go through, they break down the whole thing. The steel dossier that this is all based on was a guy that used to be a British, British spy that worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign hmm. and how the FBI director Comey, how he went in to meet with Trump, um, and tell him that there was some Russian intelligence out there, even though there wasn't. And then him doing that led gave the media the lead that they needed to publish all this stuff. And it's not that complicated. Hmm. They just made it up and, uh, it was pretty exciting. So, and then on the news and so you'll see that every night on the news, it just got people addicted. I mean, even me included, like I didn't, I got radicalized by the 2016 election and the military intelligence does not want that to happen. So I don't know if you remember this too, but when Donald Trump first got elected and he did the Muslim ban, people were putting their bodies in airports to try and stop this from happening. Like people were protesting, people were active. And then the Russiagate stuff kind of let you just watch the news and feel like an activist and hate Donald Trump and feel like an activist. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it allowed the Democratic Party to blame the left, essentially, for their loss. Um, not the fact that Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. Every leftist I know has been screaming for them to remove the Electoral College since forever. And she was a deeply unpopular candidate with many liberals and leftists. Because she's horrible. They're all horrible. But it allowed them to just say, well, it was Russia, or it was the left. It was Bernie Sanders. He split the vote and destroyed his... 2016, his 2020 campaign, essentially, um, mm. all the Russia stuff. The military, they hate Trump, but they, they would, I mean, I hate to see what they would do if they were, if Bernie's candidacy actually took off. <laughs> like they do not, they, they hate Donald Trump, but Bernie, Bernie's different. <laughs> so, and this is not a Bernie Stan podcast. I'm not a Bernie Stan. I am. I love you, Bernie. Call me. But yeah, so that's. That's one That's one that I have a lot of evidence for. Now we're going to talk about just my ideas. I think the Amber Heard trial is a CIA op, and I think that uh, Watergate was fake. So those are my two. Let, let's, uh, <laughs> let's unpack that a little bit more if we can. Let's... It, it doesn't really have that much to unpack. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not my own idea. I heard it on a... I heard... Because it, it... So... Oh, my gosh. I don't know if I have much I want to get. So basically in the media, everybody thinks Amber Heard is an evil witch and Johnny Depp is completely innocent. And the fact that they televised this trial where they talk about sexual assault and all the parties involved did not want to be televised and this courtroom drama that social media was obsessed with. There was so much money made by the daytime television networks by broadcasting this stuff. It's a lot of unprecedented things that I'm that make me very nervous for where our culture because it essentially I've heard I've heard people say this this is I don't I'll I'll try to find it and credit the person that quoted this they said the Amber Heard trial is the end of the Me Too movement hmm. which well I mean we'll only time will only tell that we'll just see but I something about that makes me very nervous and the fact that it was just everywhere so much and. 
And as the pandemic's worsening, I don't know. It's fishy. It smells bad to me. As in like a, let's offer some misdirection for things that are mm-hmm. that are going on. Yeah. And insult the Me Too movement and get our mind away from the pandemic mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and make a shit ton of money. Yeah. And it it's, I mean, it has all the fingerprints to me. Hmm. But I don't know. I mean, what do I know? I've been studying this stuff for two years. And there's people, but there's some people that are a lot smarter than me that came up with this idea. The Watergate is fake. I haven't heard that one from a lot of people, but we, we could definitely, and I could even tack that onto the end of the Kennedy episode. We could do a Watergate, just a quick and dirty Watergate scandal. It's very interesting. Hmm. But that's about all I got for this episode. I thought you would be more feisty about the Russian stuff. But you're pretty tired. You've had a we've had a big. <laughs> I had am. A big, I am tired. A big week. This is, you're, it's so much information to take in. Sorry. No, don't apologize. I mean, it's it's supposed to be a lot of information to take in, and some of it I have to like chew on for a minute and think about, and then I get to Google some of it too. And I think that's by design. Like you know this, and I don't. So hopefully, I can ask the questions that our listeners would answer. But sometimes. And I think maybe our listeners happen, it happens to our listeners as well, but sometimes it's a lot of information. It is You gotta a lot. listen to it it's for once or twice. Yeah. I'll have to have some follow-up episodes. Yeah. Oh, and too, one thing I didn't talk about that we really don't have time to get into because we've talked all about most of Ukraine that I think we need to discuss. But one thing, because Trump being in bed with Russia was so popular and sold so much news that when Trump would do things that were antagonistic to Russia, the, ne- the media would not report on it. Hmm. And so, because it didn't fit the narrative. It didn't fit the Russiagate narrative. And so he dramatically escalated things in Russia and is, because I don't know if people understand that the United States is directly, shares a deep responsibility with what is happening in Ukraine right now because of our actions in Ukraine against Russia that is on their border. Um, right. And so I just want people to understand that he... Like he sold weapons to them. And you remember like the call, the call that he got impeached for, for all sure. that stuff is so, and the fact that Hunter Biden had a huge job in the Ukraine, like th- that is, ins- that guy is like getting drugs off of Skid Row. Like he's not, he can't like that. That's so fishy. Like mm. all of that. And like, I remember when Hunter Biden's laptop was a huge thing and everybody right. was like, this is Russia. This is Russia, which doesn't even make sense. That, that was all real. That was really his laptop. I don't know. It's just, I, it's just like it allowed it allowed the news media just to be able to do what they did in Guatemala, where they paint Soviet insignias on the weapons that they dropped. Yeah, and so they would just say, "Oh, it's Russia." Which, mm-hmm. what is that even? Like, are you talking about the Russian government? Are you talking about private firms within that operate independently of the Russian government? Like, what are you talking about? And it just, I don't know. It's just very. It's so fishy. It's so fishy, and it it got a lot of people killed. What do we do with it? Like I said, we don't answer. We don't tell you what to do. But how do we interpret all that stuff? I don't know. I Sit don't with know. it. Chew yeah. on it. Chew on it. And learn, like like with the frequency bias that we were talking about earlier, because when you learn a new word, you start to think that the, that the frequency of it, it has increased, um, which is not true. You just realize it was pretty much everywhere to begin with anyway. And so I don't want people to think now that they've learned kind of what the CIA's playbook is as far as what they're willing to do and the links they're willing to go to and their hands and all the major stories of the last, 
you know, 75 years. What I want you to understand is I want you to be able to look for things and say, that doesn't, I don't think that country is as dangerous as we think they are. And I, I don't know. It's just, it, it, and with the Russia stuff, allowing us to blame Russia and demonize Russia for Ukraine, even though we literally are doing the same thing um, in many other places, is just an, us saying that we support the Ukrainian people and sending them weapons. Those weapons will end up in the hands of the worst people that we have previously armed in Ukraine. There's a fascist group in Ukraine that America, the American intelligence agencies have sponsored. And one of the reasons that Russia declared war on them, Ukraine having a fascist problem is about as accurate as saying is, I mean, America and Russia have way more of a fascist problem than Ukraine does, but it's just senseless. It's just, we sold a lot of weapons. Fuel prices went up. That's about it. <laughs> and so I just want you to start to look for these things, smell these things. Like we said in the first season, don't, don't let them make you demonize people. Don't let them make you dehumanize people, whether those people are Russians or Ukrainians or Guatemalans or Fidel Castro. Manufacturing Consent is a fantastic book that everybody needs to read. And Hate, Inc. is the book that I'm reading right now by Matt Taibbi, one of the guys that I mentioned at the beginning. It is a, it is a, it is a not a follow-up or a sequel. That's not the right word. It was a re, it's a response to Manufacturing Consent kind of about um, the news media since 2016. And they are both very important to read. If you don't take anything else away from this podcast, please read those two books. Every American should read those. It's very important. Thanks for listening today. If you get a minute, we ask that you rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It'll help us reach more people. If you like what we're doing and want to help with the research and investigation process, and as you can tell, it is very in-depth, you can join our Patreon page. For as little as $5 a month, you can join others and get raw recordings, behind-the-episode notes, and special releases not available to the public. You can find us at patreon.com slash expiration date. You can email us at expirationdatethepodcast at gmail.com. And I, I offer that you do that, especially with questions or comments on this episode and other episodes. Follow us on Twitter at expirationdatepodcast. Our theme music is Arrival of the Geese by Chad Crouch. Graphic design by Whatever Media. This episode was written by Michelle, edited and produced by David. Subscribe to the podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Reach out to us about the Kennedy episode. I would love to do it. I think we're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs>